Ohio, to be honest, has me the, the most excited because it's something I can kind of give back to the Midwest community that really taught me how to climb and gave me so much. And, you know, I, I think it's a shame when people really load up in their cars and still drive past these county parks, these state parks, these state forces, and they won't spend the time, you know, seeing what's there. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Hey friends, welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I have a really interesting guest for you, and this is one of those shows where you might do a double take. You say, what? Did he say, yeah, I really did say, except I haven't said it yet, so let me say it. Alan Kenneth Shidley is talking to us today from the United Arab Emirates, specifically from Dubai, and he wants to talk about rock climbing in the Midwest. Yes, the Midwestern United States that people don't think about with rock climbing, and yes, he's talking to me from Dubai to do this. So, you know, that that right there is enough to make you take pause. So, Alan, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Kurt, for having me on. It's a great pleasure. You know, when you first contacted us and said, I'm in Dubai, but I love climbing in Missouri, and I want to talk about climbing in Missouri, I, I was kind of like, whiplash, you know, wait a minute, <laughs> why Why is someone in Dubai trying to get to Missouri to climb? Um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting enigma, because I live in Dubai, and at my front door, with a quick flight anywhere, I have some of the best rock climbing in the world. But uh, I sit at home and I constantly do think about bouldering in Missouri and Illinois and Wisconsin and the other Midwestern states because I find the climbing there just so rich and unique and the community is just really different. I think when you're in a landlocked area and you have climbers that are hungry for some kind of adventure, you get this really cool homegrown adventure spirit that I think, you know, since you don't see the mountains right in front of you, you have to dig a little extra deeper. And it's funny, I, I do plan trips from Dubai to fly back to the Midwest to go climb. <laughs> so a lot of people would say, well, why aren't you flying to Yosemite to climb or to Colorado or you know what I'm saying? The, the biggest reason is I hate crowds. Mm. I hate big scenes. Um, for example, last summer... I flew to South Africa to go rock climbing and I didn't go to the Rocklands. I spent all my time in the East finding new areas in the free state, going into Swaziland and going into Lesotho. I grew up really admiring the adventure climbers. Um, I didn't ever admire the climbers that were putting up the hard grades or winning all the competitions. Um, I really had, was inspired by climbers like Jeremy Collins who's an artist and a climber who's traveled around the world to find these niche crags that are off the map. So it's kind of my small way of doing that in the Midwest, but also on a global scale. Nice. So what you're really kind of into, if I'm gathering this correctly, is the joy of finding the new route that maybe no one has ever done and finding it in a place that people wouldn't expect to find it. And so there's a sense of exploration not just a matter of, oh, I'm a rock climber, but I'm an explorer who rock climbs. Am I getting close? 
Yeah, I think you're getting it right on the button. And a lot of times it comes with failure. And I, I absolutely love that. For example, my wife and I, we actually went to Azerbaijan to try and find some new boulder fields. We'd seen some photos and we heard some loose rumors. And as you know, we were traversing the Caucasus Mountains. We didn't find what we were hoping for. Uh, but, you know, we had some amazing cultural elements a part of it. We had some amazing photos and just a great bonding experience. So I, I'm never looking for, you know, the next double digit boulder. I'm just looking to climb in a place that's a little more secluded, that's a little more picturesque and that I can grab a good story out of it. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that maybe we'd be taking a double take. What did he say? But I, I think it's kind of funny because I have heard that when you climb in places like you're describing right now, people aren't accustomed to seeing climbers and everyone's doing a double take. They're like, what are you doing? Do you get a lot of that? Yeah, I get a lot of that abroad and at home. I did graduate school in New York City and one of my best buddies, Patrick Graham and I, we would ride the subway in New York City with our crash pads and people would constantly look at us. <laughs> but it really gives you an opportunity to be an ambassador for the sport and to really connect with people and introduce it to people if you're willing to take the time. And that's also what's fun about the Midwest is not everyone's exposed to climbing culture. So it's fun driving through rural Illinois and rural Kansas with a truck full of climbing gear and people at the gas station asking you what you're up to and telling them about it and maybe sparking an interest in them. I do get it, maybe a little bit more than some. And the reason is I grew up in northeastern Oklahoma, and I cut mm. my teeth for climbing on the sandstone and limestone cliffs that were around rivers and streams in the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, it wasn't a big thing at all in that time, but I met a guy in college who did sport rappelling, and we started rappel rappelling. We found a, about a 120-foot rappel we could go down and with a nice overhang, and then we started trying to climb it and, you know, how things progress. But I had so much fun doing something in a place where people just didn't do it. You know what I mean? So, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Oh, well, Alan Kenneth, let's back up a little bit, because people are probably saying Dubai? Really? So, what's the Dubai story? How did you end up there? Uh, my story of finding myself in the Middle East in general is a little bit of a meandering path. Um, I graduated from the University of Oxford, and I was looking for international experience, and I was offered a job originally in Abu Dhabi uh, to work for a university there. So I moved, absolutely loved my experience, but I decided Abu Dhabi was actually a little boring for me, and I ended up accepting the job to move to Iraq. So I spent some of the last year working in Iraq for a university there. And at the same time, I met my wonderful wife, who is Emirati, and that's the citizens of the UAE. And she's a lawyer here, and we got married. So I moved back to the UAE, but this time to Dubai, where I now work as a professor at a local university. <laughs> so I think most people, when they hear of someone living in that part of the world, especially a Westerner, they often think, uh, oil industry, consultant, something like that. But you're a professor at a university. Yeah, um, there's a lot of developing economies in the Middle East, particularly in the Arabian Peninsula. 
So if you have a skill set uh, in the service industry, such as education, uh, you will be highly sought after here. And it's a great time to come and learn about a different culture, to learn about a unique part of the world and a part of the world that's only growing in more and more importance. I'm trying to formulate this question the right way. And even in asking it, I'm revealing my severe ignorance, okay? I'll just say that up front. There are some cultures that are so extremely different that it leads to challenges for people to, to integrate and be a part of that culture for, for more than just a short visit. Do you find it's ever that way in uh, Dubai? Yes and no. I think a lot has to do with your perception of Dubai and the UAE while you're here. A lot of Dubai people looking at Dubai see it as like a larger playground. They think of it as like a Las Vegas. Mm. So they come here and they kind of just play around. They go to the tourist activities. They go to the theme parks and they go to the clubs. And they really don't expose themselves to the true nature of the UAE and the culture. But if you're willing to speak with Emiratis and the locals here and take the time to practice a little Arabic and just to get to know the people, it's a beautiful country. And the people here are very opening if you're willing to ask their questions and if you're just willing to sit down at the table with them. Okay, well, let me appeal to the same ignorance again. Um, how would you distinguish United Arab Emirates from, say, Saudi Arabia? So one is their openness towards expats. So Saudi Arabia is a country, I believe, about 60 million people. And I don't know the exact number of expats, but Saudis are, are the predominant population there. And in the UAE... There's about 9 million people here, and less than 2 million people in the UAE are actually Emiratis, so they are actually the citizens. So that means you have 7 million expats living here. Wow. So I think one of the points that's different is the openness of the UAE. It kind of actually reminds me a lot of the state in that it's opening its doors to a lot of people in different ways, not always the best. Um, but it's bringing this hyper diversity to its land. And it's kind of in this moment of questioning of what is our future? Where are we going? And how are we going to stake ourselves? Because the UAE knows oil is running out. So they're looking to make themselves a capital of education, of investment. And I think Saudi Arabia, while I'm not an expert on it, I think they're holding on a little bit too much to their reserves of oil, and they're not as open to exploration of their future as the UAE has been. You know, one more question about this, and just because I find it such a curiosity, and then we'll move right back to climbing the crags in Missouri and Illinois, <laughs> but it's just such a contrast. We're talking about opposite sides of the globe here. I was on Google Earth looking at the UAE and around Dubai, and I saw the man-made uh, formations going out into the, the Persian Gulf, the, the palms mm -hmm. and the, the man-made islands and the resorts on them and the mansions and the marinas, all on these vast um, human-designed pieces of terra firma. 
You know what I mean? I've never seen anything like that, and I, I just have to ask you about that. Yeah, those are definitely some of the main attractions for people when they come here, and that's kind of what I was speaking before. If you come to the UAE just to go to the Palm and see all this man-made things, those are wonderful examples of the UAE's progression. But I think the true beauty of the UAE really is held in the mountains and it's held in their natural landscapes. Uh, whenever I think of my most cherished moments of living here and interacting with the local culture, it always has to do of finding myself in a remote village and sharing tea with a local elder or speaking of a local herdsman that's running his goats through the mountain. And I'll ask him uh, with my wife who speaks Arabic, maybe where he's seen some of these big boulders. And then we find out from a local who's walked these mountains his whole life, uh, the best climbing. And, you know, you can spend your whole expat life or even your local life in the UAE only living in the shiny uh, buildings and living in the fancy streets without even knowing the natural landscape. And to me, that, that's the biggest shame you can do is come to the UAE and not spend time getting to know its people and, and getting to know its landscape. You know, I have one more question. I said I was my last question about the UAE, <laughs> but this is going to be more general than that. This is uh, more of a cultural question. People think a lot of that part of the world, and they always think about religious differences. And I'm curious what your perspective is. Do the religious contrasts for the, the local people in that area does that create any sort of a barrier or more of an invitation, you know, to interacting with the, with the locals? Both. And it kind of actually harpens back to climbing in these rural spaces in the Midwest. So Islam is actually a very opening religion and it's a very kind religion, but it does shape how you will interact with the locals and how you should present yourself if you are going out climbing. So example, I won't climb anywhere near that's like a local mosque, just because I don't want to be disturbing uh, that local religious site. Just as when, you know, one of my favorite spots to climb in Southern Illinois is at this spot called the Graveyard. And it's actually this little bouldering area right behind a church. I won't go climb there on Sundays because I know that's when the congregation's there. So just like in the UAE, even if there's an awesome boulder field right next to a mosque, I won't go on Friday, which is the holy day, and climb there during Juma prayers, which is the Friday prayers. Also, if I'm in a more remote area, I'll always wear long pants as a sign of respect. I won't climb with my shirt off. And I'll make sure when I see individuals, I always greet them in an Arabic saying, and I'm being respectful to the people who are very much opening me into their land. And that's a lot of how I think about climbing in general is when I'm in the Midwest, you know, some of these places that local climbers still go to actually have Native American sites on them. And you'll see like cave paintings, for example, or you know, this is a traditional land for a certain tribe and people still climb there. And my philosophy is I, I shouldn't climb there. There's so many other places in the world to climb that if this is going to cause some tension or disrespect, I can go climb somewhere else. 
Alan, I love that. I really appreciate that answer a lot. I think some tourists, and I use that word carefully, uh, make the <laughs> mistake of trying to... Uh, boy, it'd be really easy to overstate this. <laughs> I'm going to be real careful here. But they make the mistake of going to a different culture, and instead of respecting the culture and trying to show that respect, they want to observe it from a distance. I'm the Westerner, and I'm watching you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it, I find that obtuse. Um, and what you're saying is, no, 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 you respect the local people, the local culture, the history, the heritage, what's going on in an area. And then, you know, with that respect, you have so much better of an experience, and it's better both ways. Right. Yep. Wow. So living in Dubai, which is an amazing story in and of itself, but your passion, your heart, your focus is still in the Midwest, rock climbing. What have you discovered in the Midwest when it comes to climbing? Some of the best climbs I have had in the world, to be honest. Um, when you first asked me, that comes straight out of Southern Missouri. Um, in the past, I would say about four years, you've kind of seen this like surgence of bouldering of hard boulders being put up in Southern Missouri. Uh, a lot of it is occurring around Ozark, Missouri and Ironton, Missouri. And it's led by people like Jeremy Collins, who's a local climber out of Kansas city and Lance Seaton, who's a climber out of Springfield, Missouri and a lot of climbers out of St. Louis, Missouri, and they're going into the foothills, they're going into the hollers of the mountains, and they're finding these awesome gyms. And Missouri's got a plethora of different rock quality and rock types there. And I've had an amazing time climbing in southern Missouri. I always say that's one of the most neglected spots of climbing. In addition to southern Oklahoma, I mean, the Wichita Mountains in my opinion, are the most beautiful mountain range in the United States. Um, yeah, there's something breathtaking about the Rockies, but I remember the first time I drove down to the Wichita Mountains in Oklahoma from Lawrence, Kansas, got in late at night so I couldn't see them, and I woke up around 5 a.m. to a howler of the coyotes, and I could just see the sun coming over the Wichita Mountains, and I could see some buffalo at the base of it, and all of a sudden, this small herd of wild horses just come out of the valley. And, you know, there's something really beautiful about the granite down there, how it absorbs the different greens and yellow of the elements that get sucked into it. And um, Southern Illinois is uh, always, always at my heart. That, in my opinion, that's the best climbing in the world, the best community in the world down there. And companies such as So Ill have put so much into the efforts there to make it known, but yet they, they've kept it pretty quiet and it hasn't bubbled as Arkansas has with like Horseshoe Canyon. And, you know, those three areas are, in my opinion, the best climbing areas in the world. Wow. So Southern Oklahoma and the Washita Mountains, uh, you mentioned Southern Illinois, you mentioned Arkansas and Missouri, Ozark, Missouri. There's also an Ozark, Southern Illinois. I don't know if you've been there. Yep, I have. And have you ever climbed around Jasper, Arkansas? Jasper, yeah. I've been around Jasper quite a few times. Uh, Go up to Fountain Red and do some of the boulders there. Um, In my college years, I wasn't too far 
uh, from some of the boulder fields in Arkansas. So I'd usually drive down on the weekend with some buddies and enjoy around Jasper and go to the, what's it, the Ozark Cafe down there and, you know, eat a quick breakfast and go out for the day. <laughs> That's awesome. So those are, you know, my old stomping grounds. That's really, really fun. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fill you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. By now you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. So you're saying that there's beauty in these places that people wouldn't expect, that there is climbing that people wouldn't expect. Describe the climbing. Compare and contrast it to what people usually think of when they think of of uh, mountain climbing or rock climbing, I should say, technical rock climbing. Yeah, if you're looking for an experience where you're going to follow a well-grooved trail and you're going to see 20 other climbers along the way and the route's going to be chalked and the route's going to be cleaned pristine and you're going to have great cell phone reception, the Midwest is not the place for you to climb. Um, to learn to climb in the Midwest, you got to get used to brushing holds, breaking holds, cleaning landings, building your own trail, getting really dirty just to clean maybe a 20 foot wall. Um, and you have to learn to manage your expectations and you're not going to go out and find a, you know, 14,000 foot mountain hiding in the middle of Kansas, but you might find you know, a 30, a 40, 30 foot tall cliff that could be topped rope, could be trad climbed. And there's something special about finding small little gyms. And if you're willing to deal with the failures that are going to come with it, as it always does with climbing, um, you're going to have a great time in the Midwest. Mm. You know, the other day I happened to be around Uray, Colorado, and there are a couple of guys that were uh, climbing what I'm going to, it was, it was a volcanic composite and people around here might know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's where you had mud and ash and rocks blown out yeah. of a volcano <laughs> that hardens into this soft, weird composite stuff. And I'm looking at the, the bolts that they've stuck in it. And I stopped and I asked, I said, will that even hold a bolt? 
And then they laughed and they said, yeah, it will, but we're not rock climbing it. And then they held up their ice axes. They were ice climbing the volcanic deposit in the summertime. <laughs> I was like, well, there you go. Um, but the, uh, the reason I bring that up is because the different types of rock are going to hold the protection differently, right? And you mentioned trad climbing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I've always been curious because I see people trad climbing around on the granite and stuff. You kind of get a feel for what that does. But what is trad climbing like when you're on a route that's not been climbed? You're talking about cleaning a route. You, you place some protection. Does it hold? Does it pull a lot? I mean, what are you up against? I used to be a really big trad climber back in some of my early college days. And I used to do a lot of trad climbing on some limestone and some sandstone, which definitely gets a little gnarly, gets a little spicy at times. And uh, I realized developing trad routes was not for me. Uh, I wasn't the best at it. I ended up taking some pretty hard whippers. And that's when I slowly started making my shift more towards bouldering. So I think in the Midwest, that's where a lot of the potential has for development. But if you just drive along the Mississippi, um, you're going to see a lot of great sandstone cliffs that could be trad climbed in the likes of eastern Iowa, eastern Missouri, and all along the western uh, part of Illinois. And, uh, I, you know, I kind of gave up those trad days, just partially. I realized I wasn't the best at developing it, but you, you definitely got to have some strong self-confidence if you're going to get in the game here for it. Okay. So there is an element of maybe soft rock and that sort of thing where you're not going to be a hundred percent sure that your protection is going to stay where you put it. Yeah, your your protection is gonna blow quite a few times before you figure out the right adjustment. Ooh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's that's spooky to me, obviously. But you know, when I did my climbing in in the, uh, I would say northwestern Arkansas, northeastern Oklahoma, primarily, I would top rope mm-hmm. it. You know, then I didn't have to worry about that. And top roping is relatively easy in most of these places because you have great access to the top. There's always a sneak route. I don't know if that was your experience, but that's what I started doing. So do you top rope a lot, or are you just primarily boulder now? Uh, I have a weird climbing philosophy. I only rope up if I'm going to trap. I, I, I don't really care for bolting or for top roping. In some way, that, that kind of gnarls my bones in a weird way. Okay. I grew up around uh, some old-school climbers that their philosophy is, if you're not going to do it from the ground up with a trad rack, you shouldn't do it. And so I kind of fell in this weird world of trad climbing and bouldering. And now it's just predominantly bouldering that I really lean to because that's what where I go climb has access to. And when I'm back in the Midwest, that's really where the development is. And as I said, I fell in this weird middle ground of only trad and only doing bouldering. And I don't recommend it to my kids <laughs> when they start climbing of just going down this, maybe start off with top roping and sport climbing, but that, that's who I grew up around. That's the climbing community I grew up around were these these old guys that had this old school philosophy, and I grew up admiring the wrong cool cats, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the, the free soloing over water, that's become a really big thing in the last few years because if you still have that element of, okay, I'm not roped up here, I'm I'm climbing, but if I fall, at least there's 
water below me, and it doesn't mean you're going to have an easy landing. You can you can really beat yourself up. But have you done that much? So for deep water soloing, there's some awesome locations in the Midwest for that. Uh, Southern Missouri, ha- I mean Southern Illinois has Kincaid Lake, and that is an awesome deep water soloing spot that I highly recommend anyone in the states go check out. And in Southern Missouri, there's some great spots. Um, there's a spot outside Franklin, Missouri that has this cool granite arch that you can go climb over a big lake. And down near Springfield, Missouri, there's some of the cliffs along the rivers. There are awesome sandstone pockets that you can climb and take nice falls into. And I've even heard of people doing deep water soloing up in Minnesota. To me, that's some cold water, <laughs> and I'm not going to fall in it. <laughs> but uh, as I said, if you live in the Midwest, I think sometimes you just take what you get and and you buck up and you do it. But that's that's too cold for me. Well, tell us what it's like then to to solo over deep water. How that changes the sport because that's a whole new dynamic. I think it's that's completely different. It definitely allows you, I think, to push the limitations. And you're able to do without worrying about, you know, the rope or any gear. And it kind of adds in that beauty element of bouldering where all you think about is you and the rock. I mean, you just got to have climbing shoes and chalk and you're good to go. It hasn't been something I've hard, you know, really dove into. I know there's people who are fanatical about it. They, They travel around the world. They go to Spain. They go to the Philippines. They go to Thailand. They go to Oman just to deep water climb. Um, for me, I, I think it's a way where climbing can oddly open up to the public more. And I think we're seeing that with, um, you know, more commercialized climbing. It's an interesting way to get the public to watch climbing because it's a little more audience friendly. Right. But it's also a way that we can push the limits of the sport without really having to worry about slamming into a wall. But you just got to make sure you fall correctly in the water. Well, and falling incorrectly in the water has a high penalty, so it's not like you're really safe, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. hence why I'm not into it. Yeah, that's pretty wild. So you do a lot of bouldering. You you mentioned your crash pad going down the subways, you know, in New York, and I think that's funny. People probably thought it was a mattress for sleeping on, thought you were homeless or something. Yeah, even a funnier story is uh, once I was climbing up at Devil's Lake in Wisconsin, and there was me and three other buddies, and we had two crash pads with us. And and this guy comes around the corner, and he goes, what are four dudes doing with two beds half naked in the woods? And uh, we we, we just told him things were going to get interesting, and if you wanted to join, he's more than welcome. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, Well, speaking of crash pads, I think a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with it. I mean, if they're not into bouldering, they may never have seen what one is and what you're talking about. So describe what it is and how it's used. So a crash pad is essentially, for simplistic imagery reasons, it's a uh, kind of like a mattress that you can put on the ground to make it a softer landing. So when you're climbing on a boulder, you don't have to worry about a rope or a harness. That All you really need is a spotter who is a person who's going to help your fall onto the mattress of some sort. And usually when we're out climbing, you'll have three or four pads on the ground, making sure you fall on a a soft landing. And it kind of looks weird when you're carrying on your back. So 
you always get questions and people will look at you in different ways, but it, you know, it makes the sport of bouldering safe and fun. Mm. Okay. So it's like a mini mattress. The main thing is that you can actually hit it when you fall. Um, Mm -hmm. have you ever missed and hit hard? Yeah. Uh, I've had some spicy falls in my life. Once again, it was also up in Wisconsin, I was climbing with one of my good climbing partners, Beck Johnson. We had the pad on a slanted rock. And when I came down, my feet actually pushed the pad out. And I was about an inch away from smacking my face onto a hard limestone rock. I mean, I I probably would have shattered my nose. I probably might have shattered my forehead. Uh, but luckily, you know, my hand got in the way and I just bruised my hand a little bit. Um, but yeah, you, you can't, you got to make sure you put the pad down correctly and that you got to walk to make sure there's no rocks poking up through maybe the spaces between two pads. And, that, and that's why you have a good spotter. You have someone who's going to make sure they guide your fall onto the best spot of the pad. And if you have those two elements, bouldering can be an extremely safe sport. But you do have to carry a mattress into the crags. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's funny. You have to look like a turtle for yeah, a moment. That's funny. I did have one experience when I was a lot younger. Wintertime, uh, deep snow, but boulder filled under the snow. And I start up this face, and I shouldn't have been on it. I got to a point where I needed to come back down. I was too high to jump by far. You know, I'm about 25, 30 feet up. And... The sun is gone. My fingers are now numb. I can't feel the rock anymore. There's ice on the rock. I start trying to down climb it, and they're like one-way holds. I couldn't figure out how to come back down again. And the the gal I had with me, I said, just stomp out the snow below me. See where the boulders are. And she's like, well, you could kind of land here, but ooh, I wouldn't land there. And well, there's a little two-foot section right here. Well, the rest of the story is I down climbed until I fell, and then I tried to hit the right spot and missed, of course. Came down on a, a boulder that submerged in the powder and twisted my leg. And I mean, that that kind of stuff can get really, really gnarly, and I don't recommend it because it's too easy for people to get seriously hurt. But what kind of safety recommendations or guidelines would you say are important for bouldering so that people can do it and come back to do it again another day? Um, in addition to making sure you have pads and a good spotter make sure you have a sizable pad um i have found myself outside trying to do maybe too high of a boulder with too small of a pad so make sure um you know what you're going to be stepping up to that day and you have the right pads for it also before you lay down the pad clear the landing a little bit move out the sharp rocks so they don't poke up through the pads make sure there's no snakes getting underneath the pads. I've had that happen in Arkansas in the summer sometimes, and a rattlesnake will crawl underneath of it. So make sure if you are in an area that there aren't little critters getting underneath of it. And that, and making sure your spotter is aware of how to move pads around when you're on a climb. Maybe the climb requires a pad at the start in one spot, but near the crux, it requires a pad in a different spot. So you're having a spotter who's aware and using the correct type of pads and making sure the landing's nice and clear. And also keeping in mind the lifespan of a crash pad. Certain crash pads can blow out quicker than others. If you're always landing in the dead center, you know, get, 
jumping on it a couple of times and make sure you're not going straight to the bottom is really important because you don't want to fall from, you know, 10 feet up and you just feel the ground when you land on your pad. So making sure the lifespan of the pad is, is in check before you climb too is really important. Mm, good words. You know, you mentioned snakes getting under the pad. I was thinking about climbing in the Midwest, especially the Southern parts and the idea is that there could be snakes on the rocks on the ledges and things as you climb have you ever had an experience like that i've never had snakes on a rock i have had vultures refuse to move off the top of boulders (laughs) and because of that i absolutely hate vultures i don't (laughs) hate anything and i never use the word hate but i thoroughly hate vultures and, and they're mean, and they're big creatures. They are. And they'll spit at you. And uh, I remember once we were trying to climb uh, down in, I think it was in Missouri, and these vultures just sat on top of this one boulder. Not that their nest was there. If their nest was there, we would have happily moved away. But they just decided they wanted to sit there and watch us, but also torment us. <laughs> and uh, so, so not only snakes, but you got to keep an eye out for the the flying creatures too. And also in the Midwest, in some parts of it, you got to watch out for coyotes. Got to watch out for porcupines. That's always a problem down in uh, southern Kansas and also out in um, Oklahoma. And another another thing I always think about climbing, you know, in Oklahoma and Arkansas and even in Kansas and Nebraska is armadillos. Yeah. You know, I, I always thought armadillos were nice little guys. They, they will chase you the moment they see you if you're near their nest. And uh, <laughs> so making sure, you know, when you throw down the pad and, you know, we're, we're guests a lot of the times in, in these areas. And, you know, we, we share this space. And I know it kind of sounds a little bit hippie-ish, but, you know, be, be respectful. I, I never understood why climbers will knock down bird's nest or, They'll, they'll move snake eggs even I've seen people do and it, it, it's this mentality of this I, I don't want to sound you know like old school or what you kind of read in climbing magazine right now is uh you know this, this old age of climbing is going out but you know there's it goes back to there, there's thousands of climbs in the world if a bird or a snake has a nest there you know just move on there's other V5s in the world and there's other V3s you can go climb. Yeah, I love that. It's a good attitude. I, I kind of chuckle because uh, it is personal experience. For me, it was skunks. You know, there are two animals that have a strange defense, actually three. You've got your porcupines, you've got your armadillos and your skunks, right? Most animals will either run or fight. But these guys, mm-hmm. you know, like the armadillos, the way that they defend themselves from attack is to ball up and jump straight up in the air because they'll hit the face yep. of the, the coyote or something, you know, and they're hard. It, it really hurts. That's why they take grills out on cars. And then skunks, they just turn and spray. They don't have to run, right? And then you have your porcupines. Mm-hmm. And man, I did not know how powerful porcupines were until I encountered the first one. And when they mm. go after you, they can swing that tail around with so much force. I mean, it would be a home run if there was a baseball involved. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, so, but the, the funny story for me was a buddy and I were messing around on some cliffy bluffs and we were above a, a nice stream. 
and found a little cave hole and looked in there. And as our eyes adjusted, there is a, a black face with a white stripe. <laughs> We're like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, you don't want to be around anything like that either. But you're absolutely right. You know, respect nature. It was there first. Why not? We can completely enjoy being in nature, being a part of nature, and even contributing to the balance of nature without tearing stuff up. There's no reason for us to tear stuff up, right? Mm -hmm. You plan trips from Dubai to the Midwest. Um, why has it stolen your heart so much? Part of the reason is, um, you know, I was born and raised in the Midwest, and some of my fondest memories growing up are my family and I cramping in either to our car or old RV and visiting some of the old state parks and national forests around the Midwest. And it's also just stolen my heart because, you know, it's easy to, you know, drive out to the Rockies or, you know, the Sierras and, and you just, you see the potential. It, it, it hits you painstakingly right between the eyes and, and it kind of takes your breath away right away. What, what really I love about the Midwest is going to these small state parks, county parks, or, you know, going on private land uh, that you get permission with and finding these things that you just didn't expect were there. And I really love that. And I love telling people and being like, you know, there's actually this great climbing spot in Eastern Iowa. If you're into going out there and, you know, adjusting your expectations, you're going to have a great time. You know, one of the things I've really enjoyed in the past year or two is watching this rise of kind of North Dakota climbing. So there's a group up there that's, you know, marking out some of these spots go climb in Western North Dakota. And I really enjoy seeing the photos coming out of this project and seeing some of the climbs that are coming out. Yeah, they, they might not be as hard as what's going on in Yosemite, but there's something beautiful about changing expectations and finding something beautiful that's been overlooked. So it's, I kind of like finding the wallflowers of climbing, I guess. Camp Crate is a gear rental trip planning service. So if you contact us, we will plan a backpacking trip for you if you don't have one planned. And then we rent you all the gear and send it to your house, send it to your hotel, wherever it needs to go, anywhere in the U.S., we will ship you gear. And then once you're done, you put it back in the box and return it back to us. Most of our customers are first-timers, so we want to give you the confidence to go out into the wilderness with the right gear and with the know-how. And also with 24-7 support, we're able to really make you feel comfortable while at the same time challenging yourself physically and emotionally and mentally. So we had some customers in the backcountry call us because they were concerned they had altitude sickness and we were able to talk them down, get them to a safe place, create an emergency plan, and we were willing to do anything we needed to get them out of there. But they ended up taking our advice and still having a really good trip. I know that a lot of people have told us it's been life-changing for them, the best trip they've ever done. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, we're always updating that. Our website is campcrate.net. Well, another aspect that you mentioned before we hit record was the idea that there's adventure everywhere. It might be in your, mm -hmm. your own backyard and just overlooked, right? Yeah, and I, I, you know, that's something when I lived in Kansas, all my 
all my climbing friends would pack up for the weekend and drive eight hours to go to Colorado, or they would drive five hours down to Arkansas and, you know, they would find all the ways to get out of Kansas. And, you know, one of the best climbing trips I ever had was my good old climbing buddy, Zach Rose and I, we loaded up his Subaru Impreza for two weeks and we drove around Kansas, just finding boulder fields, sandstone cliffs to go climbing and you know we ended up finding some awesome mountain biking in the process out in the badlands of western kansas and we found some pretty fun limestone bouldering down near elk city and you know that still stands as one of the best climbing trips i've ever had and you know we, we drove endlessly around the state of kansas and uh I would never trade that experience and coming back with some unexpected stories and some unexpected photos to show people. And I don't know, I think that's a little more fun than saying you, you went out to Yosemite and climbed the same route everyone else has. And you kind of gain a new appreciation for what's around you and, you know, what's around the corner. Wow. You know, of every state in the 50 United States, Kansas probably has the flattest reputation of all. Maybe Florida. I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, Kansas is not known for topography. And yet you're telling me that your one of your best climbing trips ever was in the state of Kansas. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's funny and it's weird. Uh, and that, that right now is actually why I'm, I have a good buddy who lives in Columbus, Ohio right now. And uh, Ohio's climbing scene is a little weird because some of the state parks and the county parks aren't open to climbing. But down uh, on the southern border of Kentucky, um, in some of the big state parks down there, they do allow climbing in some areas. So, you know, just as I really love that Kansas trip, honestly, the, the next trip I'm really looking forward to is going to Ohio and going bouldering and going climbing and seeing what's there. And and that's funny because in, in my climbing lineup right now, I'm, I'm planning a trip to go to the Philippines. I'm planning a climbing trip to go to Macedonia. And I'm also planning a trip to go to Malawi. But Ohio, to be honest, has me the, the most excited because it's something I can kind of give back to the Midwest community that really taught me how to climb and gave me so much. And you know, I, I think it's a shame when people really load up in their cars and they'll drive past these county parks, these state parks, these state forces, and they won't spend the time, you know, seeing what's there. Oh, that's that's fun. Okay, so your wife is from the UAE, right? Yep, she is Emirati. And she climbs? Yeah, she's she's a good climber. She's an excellent boulder. I wish I would have gotten her into climbing at a much younger age because I honestly think she would be on the World Cup right now. Wow. They, I tell you, there are a lot of very talented lady climbers out there who just do so well. It's, there's something about um, the flexibility and the technique and and sometimes a, the strength to weight ratio, I think, that can really help female climbers to, to excel. But that really wasn't where I wanted to head. Where I wanted to head was, have you taken her to the Midwest and what does she think? She has been climbing in the Midwest, and she absolutely loves it. Um, she never spent time in the Midwest before we got married. And, you know, she's been back to where I'm from. I'm originally from a small farming town called Metamore, Illinois. 
and she absolutely loves it when she's there. And she really loves going to, you know, Shawnee National Forest is where I really learned to climb. And she loves going down there. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, internationally, but even nationally, if you're in these bigger metropolitan areas, people hold these stereotypes about rural America, where a lot of climbing is located in the Midwest. And I think they're afraid of it, uh, either justifiably or unjustifiably. And, you know, you know, my wife is, she's a woman of color. She's Muslim. She's Emirati. But she will be the first person to tell you how much she loves going to rural America and how nice the people are there and how opening the communities can be. Of course, there, there's still issues. Uh, you know, everywhere has issues. But she will happily, anytime jump in a van with me and drive down the Shawnee National Forest. And, you know, she's often asking me, you know, where's our next trip to the Midwest going to be? Mm. Yeah, that's fun. You know, I grew up in rural America and I I love the, the small town folks and the country folks. And, you know, there's a, there is a reputation around some backwards thinking, but you can't stereotype that. You know, there are people that think backwards in the cities too. And, it doesn't matter where you go, you can find people that are small-minded. But it, I think as a rule, people are decent people everywhere. And I have never been among better people than the people that I knew in rural America. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, a great example of it is, you know, we were down in Tennessee around Chattanooga doing some climbing. And we were, we just finished our day climbing at the Lily Boulders. And we, we stopped in a small town. I think it's called Licking, Tennessee. We're in, you know, a typical, you know, gas station in rural America, which also acts as the town's video store, the grocery store, and the ice cream parlor. And, you know, we were in there and, you know, it's a, it's a typical scene that I grew up around. Everyone's wearing, you know, cutoffs and dirty jeans and the local high school t-shirt. And it, I could see my wife was a, a little uneasy. And I asked her, I was like, all right, well, you know, let's check out and let's go. And, you know, we're, we're checking out. And, you know, the girl, the young woman who was checking us out, you could tell she was a little, um, something was on her mind, you know, and, and as we grabbed our bags and we're about ready to head out the door, you know, the, the woman just looks at my wife and she goes, I have to tell you, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And it made my day that you were here. And, uh, you know, in that instant, you could see my wife's whole perception that, wow, you know, I was nervous because I thought these people were looking at me because, you know, they might think, oh, this is someone who's different. We don't want her here. But uh, and then she realized, you know, people are just curious about everyone. And, and you know, and now she, she loves going into rural America and she loves telling people about her adventures there and the climbing endeavor, endeavor she's had. So I think, you know, it goes back to what you said. There's, there's nice people everywhere and you just have to be open to it. Yeah. Good word, man. And you find those people no matter where you go in the world. And I think that what creates fear most of the time is fear of the unknown. If you don't know something and it's a little intimidating, then I think that means that's an invitation. In my book, that means, well, hey, I must be ignorant about something. If, I, if I'm if i nervous and I don't know, then maybe I should go and find out. You know, I, I think that that's exactly right. And I, you know, I have two examples. One that one that's abroad and one that's closer to home is 
you know, my wife and one of our other climbing friends, we just went to Rwanda to do some hiking, but also kind of scope out some climbing. And when you hear Rwanda, everyone thinks of the genocide between the Tutsi and the Hutu. Uh, but when you're there now, Rwanda is extremely safe. It's extremely clean. It's extremely welcoming country. And there was so much to learn from my false expectations being there. You know, and another example is that, and, you know, when I first went to Northern Arkansas and I, I went climbing around Jasper, you know, I, I had expectations that, you know, this was going to be a different region that I've ever been to. And I was, even though I'm a country boy and I'm a rural boy and I grew up in a farming town and I grew up hunting, you know, I, I was kind of un, uneasy staying in the backwoods of Arkansas. But once I got there, you know, I, I just realized it's just like everywhere else. You have people who are suspicious and people who are welcoming. And, you know, I think it goes back to what you just said, the the unknown. And if you're not willing to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, you're going to lose a lot in life. Yeah, absolutely. And I can personally say that some of the people I love the most on the entire planet are in the backwoods of Arkansas around Jasper. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. And they're not all playing dueling banjos. <laughs> Hey, you know what? We have burned through our time so quickly. Alan Kenneth, what would you like to leave with the Adventure Sports Podcast audience? What what kind of a thought do you have about climbing in general? My my closing thought would be, you know, don't give up on the Midwest. Don't write it off. Um, if you're in the Midwest, look up the spots that are around you. And I don't just mean the big spots like Devil's Lake or, you know, Shawnee National Forest or Horseshoe Canyon, go find the smaller spots that are in your area or go visit your county parks. And that kind of goes for everyone everywhere listening is don't go to where everyone else is going. The best climbing, in my opinion, is when you find something new with your closest friends and you're the first people to enjoy it and then you can tell everyone else. So you can be an ambassador for something new. And I think that really offers the greatest joy of climbing. Yeah, I agree. That's really cool. I, I have to ask one more question because you've chosen a life of uh, new experiences, obviously. You know, to go from a rural, small town life to uh, the life that you've described, traveling all over the world, living in Dubai, you know, what drove you to be open to that kind of an experience? It honestly comes back to two things, really. Um, the first and foremost, it, it comes from my family. Even though I grew up in a smaller farming town, uh, I jokingly say I was raised by hippies. Uh, my dad went to Stanford in the 70s. So I think he kind of got indoctrinated into the idea that you should be open to all opportunities and you should be open to all people. And so my parents really taught me from an early age is to be open and respectful to everyone. And then the second thing is, uh, I jokingly say, I grew up in an area where you were diverse if you were Mennonite. <laughs> so, 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 so that was diversity to me, is that if you were Mennonite or if you were Amish, that's diversity. Right. Um, so it really, it really pushed me from an early age to go see what else was out there. And, you know, actually, the, the third point was, is uh, I grew up riding my bicycle just from one small town to another small town. And I, I think from an early age, just going 
from one small town to another small farm town and seeing what they had and learning about the people there. And then when I turned 16, I got a car and I, I drove from little further distances. And, you know, I, I think it kind of just this small building step where I'm still in some metaphor, I'm still riding my bike from where I live and going seeing places where I don't live. And now I just do that on a bigger scale and I, I use other means of transportation, but I do with an open mindset and, uh, and an open heart. I love it. So Alan, I'm sure that people are going to want to know more about what you're up to. So do you have a website or something where they can kind of track where you are and what you're doing? Yeah, you can go to www.akshidle.com and you can click on the outdoors tab where you can read some of my outdoor writings and hear some of my interviews about my travels abroad and at home. Right on. What if people are curious about some of the stuff you're talking about? Is it okay if they contact you? Yeah, there's also a contact page where you can shoot me an email and I'm pretty quick about getting back within usually 24 hours. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Adventure Sports Podcast and showing us what is possible with a life and maybe in places you wouldn't expect. You know, I appreciate your time. I love your perspective. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, you know, I'm always saying you don't have to live in some adventure capital of the world to be adventurous. Man, it is in your backyard, as Alan Kenneth just proved to us. So... Until the next show, find those hidden gems in your own backyard and get out there. Have some fun. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. How about you do yourself and us a favor by joining us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. To become a patron, it's only $5 a month and you get access to our Friday Life Outside the Box series episodes for patrons only. You'll also have the chance to win some of our product demo prize giveaways. Head on over to patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast and sign up. Thanks, guys.